Hi, thank you for listening to Trinity San Diego Podcast. If this is your first time tuning in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message will encourage you. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, you can help us by reaching others by investing at trinitysandiego.org slash give. Thanks again for joining us. Now here's Pastor Katie. And, and, you know, my message this morning, I prepared my message before this happened. And we're closing out this series called Jesus in the Middle. And Todd talked about Jesus is in the middle of your storm. He's in the middle of your struggle. And I'm supposed to talk about how, the, how Jesus is in the middle of your story. And I think it's interesting that uh, there was an interruption in my narrative yesterday. You see, we all have narratives. We all have things that we tell ourselves and we tell other people about our life. And there was a major interruption in mine yesterday. And it reminded me that Jesus is always with me in the middle of my story. That I have not been left behind. I have not been forsaken because I had a negative narrative going into this Sunday. I'll just be real honest with you. Should have been really positive. Should have been real great off of Easter Sunday. Great day best Sunday of the year. I had a pretty negative narrative going. And so I want to challenge you guys today, just in the next few moments, to think about the narrative that you have, to think about what it is that you are telling yourself, what it is that you are telling your kids, what's it, what it is it that you are telling other people about your, about who you are, about who your God is. Will you do that with me? Will you just come with me for the next 20 minutes, okay? Let's do this. I'm going to actually read from a story in the scriptures where Jesus interrupted a narrative and he flipped the script for what the outcome was. But before I do that, I want to define what narrative is. A narrative is a report of connected events, real or imaginary, presented in a sequence of written or spoken words or still moving images or both. The word derives from the Latin verb narer, narer, to tell. So I want to pray. Now that we know what the narrative is, what a narrative is, I want to pray. Jesus, be with us. Speak to your people. Amen. 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 Thank you, Alan. You're awesome. Let's give Alan a hand. So yesterday, yesterday, uh, Todd mentioned that we went to lunch, the four of us, our little family. And do you, how many of you know Kennedy, my daughter? I know, I think maybe half the room knows Kennedy. So I have a four-year-old daughter. And let me tell you, she is an experience. Uh-huh. That's the best word I can think of to describe her. She is an experience. To be in her presence is an experience. And mostly always positive. Mostly always. Because sometimes, you know, she's four. And she has a temper tantrum. Um, But, you know, Kennedy has a very active imagination. And she likes to tell stories. She likes to create her own narrative. So she sits down at lunch at Cheesecake Factory. And the waitress comes up, and she's a very nice girl, and starts engaging Kennedy in conversation. Well, that's all Kennedy needs is a green light, Okay, (laughs) The smile is the green light, and that's all she needs to start talking your ear off. And so she goes, hey. I don't remember the girl's name. I think it's Cindy, Cindy or something. She goes, hey, Cindy, guess what? She goes, I got, I got a cat at home. And um, her name is Rainbow Snow. And no joke. 
and she and then she starts talking. When I say colorful imagination, I mean literally. Yeah literally colorful, and she's describing rainbow snow, and she goes, she's very soft and furry, and she kind of starts going like this, and then she goes, and she's rainbow-colored. She's, she's got all the colors of the rainbow, and she has special powers, because when we go to lunch, she flies right next to my window outside of the car. <laughs> Literally, this is the story. Danae's laughing out loud because she, she's heard this story multiple times. Danae watches Kennedy. And uh, so she's telling the waitress this, and the waitress then kind of figures out, after she starts explaining how she transports herself like, by flying next to the, the car window, that, that rainbow snow doesn't exist. Rainbow snow's not real, okay? And now you guys know that rainbow, Kennedy does not have a cat named rainbow snow. We are dog people, okay? <laughs> I just say that. I'm sorry for the cat people in the room. But that was the narrative that was being created. But the thing about Kennedy's narrative, because she's four, she inserts specific things that are true, right? Which is what we do sometimes, which, what is the definition of narrative? Sometimes it's real or imaginary. And so she'll be talking about rainbow snow and how rainbow snow flew uh, right next to my car window um, to Cheesecake Factory, and that's how we got there. And then I went to Danae's house, and mom, when I went to Danae's house, we went and saw Phoebe. Well, Phoebe is Danae's cat, and she is actually real. And so she inserts different parts of her reality or her narrative into the story that she presents to other people. And I think sometimes we have a narrative that we have created in our own life, whether, whether completely comprised of real or imaginary things, those are the, that's the story that we're living in and that we're walking in, okay? And so some of us might have derived a narrative from actual real experiences. Maybe we have negative experiences that have shaped our life. Um, or maybe there are, there are lies that we have received as truth about who we are. And what, what that does is that creates our narrative, and our narrative is our percep perception. And what perception is to each and every person, if you are not confronted with the truth of the scriptures, it becomes your reality about yourself. And so if somebody has said something about you that, you are, that you're lazy, or that uh, you'll never be a success, or any, any kind of thing that is derogatory towards you, and you start to believe that, our brain starts looking, if we believe those things, we start looking for evidence to prove that that's true. So if somebody says to you, nobody's ever going to like you, you're never going to have any real friends, uh, if we believe that and we accept that as truth about ourselves, then our brain starts looking for people to be mean to us. It starts looking for people to exclude us. And that becomes our perception, which becomes our reality, which is our narrative that we are walking with every day, oh, so day in and day out. And let me tell you something. There are many of us in this room that have the wrong narrative. We've got wrong narratives about who we are. We have wrong narratives about who our neighbor is or who's sitting next to us. And what Jesus wants to do is come into the middle of your story. And he wants to flip the script. And he does this in John 4 with the woman at the well. A woman, by the way, that was an outcast by society. A woman that had a shady past. A woman that had been defined by promiscuity, by her culture, by her region. And I'm going to show you this, how he does this. But when he enters the story, he does four things. You have your notes? Are you ready to write it down? It's four I words. I made it easy, okay? 
So I, you can remember, number one, he interrupts the narrative. Number two, he interjects into the narrative. He interjects himself into the narrative. He influences then the narrative because he is intentional to change the narrative. So if you need to take a picture of that, just so you remember, this is kind of how this story forms in John chapter four. So let's go to John chapter four. If you have your Bibles, um, I want to read this. And And I say this because I think sometimes we get locked into narratives that have become invisible prisons in our life because we get stuck in a narrative and we keep walking the same exact way throughout our life. And it's this kind of almost like this walk that I'm going to describe with the woman at the well is that we keep living in the same isolation. We keep living in the same depression. We keep saying the same things over to ourselves and rehearsing a negative narrative. And Jesus is wanting to interrupt and then initiate a change into the narrative. Okay, so it says, now Jesus learned, John chapter four, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact, It was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, if you don't know, uh, geographically, uh, Judea to Galilee, um, it was like a straight shot through Samaria. But... What you need to know culturally in those days is that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Samaritans were a race that was a byproduct of Israel's sin from generations before. And so the the Israelites, correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor Bob. Okay, Israelites intermarried with pagan cultures and therefore gave birth to the Samaritan race. So true Orthodox Jews would not associate with Samaritans. It's interesting to me that Jesus had a lot to do with the Samaritans. There's the good Samaritan, there's the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, he kind of cares about the outcasts. He kind of cares about people that other people have defined as um, uh, unlovable or uh, should be ostracized. Jesus cares about the one. And so we, we see in this chapter that he has to actually go through Samaria. But what I was saying is that Orthodox Jews would actually in those days go all the way around. Like they would elongate their journey so that they would not have to go through Samaria. So they, they wouldn't have to associate with these common folk. And so they were, that was a British accent, by the way. I don't know if y'all, y'all didn't pick up on that. Okay, nobody's, nobody thinks it's funny. Was that good, Stephen? Yes. No. <laughs> he says no. He knows. Um, Anyway, so it's significant. The significance of this story is already unfolding if you know um, the history and if you know geography. And so he has to go through Sychar where this woman is uh, found. So let's pick up in chapter six. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In other words, Jews don't use the same dishes as Samaritans, okay? Like, we don't, we don't, we don't intermingle. We don't talk to each other. Uh, you think you're better than me. That's basically what she's saying. So here's where he interrupts the narrative, okay? This is right here where he interrupts the narrative. And up until this point, 
She had been walking around with her water jar day after day, like this, I imagine, until uh, noon. Noon was when she would go to the well. Why is noon significant and why does the Bible talk about it? Because culturally in those days, women would go to the well at either the morning or the evening hours because it was cooler. It was too hot to go to the well during, uh, during the noon hour. But this is when she chooses to do it. I wonder if the narrative that she had started to create, carrying this water jar back and forth, back and forth every day at noon, was that nobody likes me, I'm sick of everybody talking about me at the water cooler, at work, or at the well. I'm sick and tired of living in a place of isolation. I'm tired of jumping around from relationship to relationship because, you see, that's what this woman is known for, is jumping from marriage to marriage to relationship to relationship. I'm tired of looking for something to fill me. I just wonder, you know, like this, this, this kind of pattern or rhythm that I'm imagining maybe it looks like, because this is a water jar that I, I would imagine. Doesn't it kind of look biblical? Is this, from, is this from Bible times? This was Pastor Claudia's, I think. I stole it from the kitchen. I think she, I think she brought it back from... Oh, no, she doesn't know who it is. Okay. Anywho, uh, I, was, I was just imagining that day after day, she's walking and she's carrying this and she's creating this narrative and this pattern. And she's probably feeling pretty sorry for herself, living in self-pity and blaming uh, everybody else for her own thing. And she's just walking around, walking around, walking around at noon. Okay? So here in verse 10, Jesus answers her after she says, how can you ask me for a drink? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here's where he interjects himself into the narrative, okay? Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty. Again, because she was thirsty. More ways than one, okay? <laughs> Nobody got that, babe. <laughs> we'll move right along. But so whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I want you to underline that part in your Bible if you have your Bible or highlight it on your Bible app. She's so adamant that she's saying, tell me how to get this water so that I don't have to come back here ever again. What she's saying is, is that I am ready for a change. I'm ready to live my life not not hiding from the culture, not being uh, living in my own negative narrative that I have maybe created for myself or that other people have put on me. But what I want is to get to a place of no return where I am done living this life and I am now living in my destiny. And so your story begins at the point of no return. Your new narrative that God wants to give you begins at the point of no return. When you're so sick of living the life that you have been living, when you are so sick of getting up and being depressed every day and taking pills to make it better, and you're so sick of, of, of spending yourself into debt constantly to try to feed something or heal something that is in you. When you get so sick of that narrative, you get to a place called the point of no return, where your new narrative begins. 
When I was, some of you have heard the story about when I got stuck on a roller coaster. How many of you have heard that story? Okay, a lot of people. So I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it for you. But when we were in Washington, we, had, we went to this water park slash theme park um, with the roller coaster that overlooks the five, which is a major freeway. And the, it's like, got like nine lanes or something. And there's traffic on it all the time. And so this one night, Todd and I get into a roller coaster with our small group. And it's going up the incline, up, 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 like really slow. You know how roller coasters do? Because they're doing it to like build your anticipation, you know, so you're all anxious and nervous for like the big dip or whatever. And so it's going up and going up and going up and going up. And then at the very top, it stalls. Not for 10 seconds, not for three minutes, but for 20 minutes. We were stalled on top of the roller coaster, overlooking possibly falling to our death on I-5. No joke. We're stuck on top. And so I'm thinking the guy's going to come and fix it. You know, the machinist guy walks up the stairs, which I don't even know how it, how it had a stairs uh, right next to where we were, the car. But he walks right up, takes a look, and then walks back down. Doesn't say anything. We've been sitting there for 20 minutes, and I am imagining myself dying in this, in this chair. I don't think I'm ever going to get off the roller coaster. Okay, but then... Finally, we start hearing a clicking, and it starts to click, 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 and then we kind of start looking at each other, hopefully thinking that um, we're going to go back down to safety, where we came from. That was my mindset. Like, I was thinking, okay, we're going to reverse ourselves right out of here. I'm going to jump off this thing, this death trap, and I am going to never come back to this place again. That's not what happened. We start clicking, 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 and then we start moving forward. We start going through the, the, the curve, and then we dip, and then we go throughout the whole ride. Yes, I know, it was crazy, right? Because why would you do that to people? Why would you make them ride the roller coaster after they've been stalled on top for 20 minutes? It's madness. And so I said to the guy, I'm like, I'm like, I, I, like, I like, like got off, and I was just like stomping over because I had just survived the roller coaster. And I felt this burst of angry energy. And I go up to the operator guy, and I'm like, dude, what the heck was that? Like, why would you not just take us back down to where we came from? And he said, ma'am, he said, unfortunately, your car was at the point of no return. And he said, I couldn't take you back to where you came from, but I was going to get you to where you needed to go, which was the end of the, of the roller coaster ride. And I said, okay. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> you see, God will always get you to your destination. You just might have to ride a few roller coaster rides out, but as long as you stay on that ride, he will always get you to where, the, where he wants to take you. But you cannot go back to where you came from if you're going to land in the destiny that he has designed for you. He told her, let's go up with verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So he's telling her what he already knows about her. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming. I believe, you know, when, it, when, when Jesus says woman, like I think, I feel like he's like annoyed with her and he's like, woman, shh. You know, like sometimes, 
sometimes I feel like, I feel like Todd does that to me. He's like, woman, shh. It's part of human nature, right? Male, female communication, okay? Jesus is saying, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's starting to reveal who he is. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who is speaking to you, am he. This is where he influences the narrative. The very first person that he chooses to reveal his identity as the Son of God and as the Messiah is a woman with a shady past and an uncertain future. This is the very first revelation of his identity. And when, when his identity is uh, introduced to us, it is the antidote to our indiscretion. You see, his identity, him revealing himself, was what healed the indiscretion in her. And so when we are presented with the identity of Jesus, when he interrupts our narrative and he interjects himself into our story, he starts to influence the narrative. He starts to change the narrative. He starts to flip the script because it's his identity that is the antidote to our indiscretion. It is not our works. It is not how well we pray. It is not how many times we come to church, although we need to not forsake gathering together in the assembly. That's also what the Bible says. It is who he is that heals our indiscretion. And it is who he was in this moment that healed who she was. So then we go into verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Nobody asked him that. Probably a good thing. You don't want to cross the teacher when he's in the middle of a thing, right? Then, this is the important word that I would love for you to highlight in your Bible or write down. It says, then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And then they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. You see, he's intentional to change the narrative. That was Jesus's intent. And I'd love to have the worship team come and join me as I close. But I think what was, what was interesting, what, what, what's not being said here in this narrative, in this story, is really interesting to me. And as I looked at it deeper, I, I saw that at some point his revealing of himself was the healing of herself and whatever it was that she, the decisions that she had made and the narrative that she had created for herself. Um, but it doesn't address any other dialogue. By the way, I don't know if I said it already, but this is the longest running conversation that Jesus had with another human being in the New Testament. Longest dialogue ever. Again, shows the significance of the Samaritan. Shows the significance of who people think and deem as outcasts, what Jesus really thinks, the one. You see, he left the one to, to minister to her. He left his, his disciples left him, and he was by himself to influence this woman, to interrupt her narrative, because she had a destiny that was greater than what she thought. Right. 
because of all that, that she had done, all the mistakes that she had made. But as they're having this exchange, just in these last two verses, when the disciples come and show up on the scene and they're looking around and they're like, what, why is he talking to her? But, he, but you know, he doesn't say anything. I think it's significant that the text in any translation does not leave out that she left her water jar. No text left it out. And it's seemingly, when you read it at first glance, when you read it, it seems insignificant, which some people we can deem as insignificant at first glance. We can deem as their story is in, insignificant. But this is what I love about Jesus, is that this word, left, some translations say she left her water jar. Um, this translation that I have is, says leaving her water jar. I looked it up in the Greek. And in the Greek, uh, it's a Greek word that says athiemi. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but athiemi is the Greek word for leave. And I'm like, why would there be a significant definition attached to this particular word left or leave? But there is an intention that the writer is trying to convey in this text about this word. And this word means to send forth. It means to forsake. It means to lay aside. It means to let go. It means to release what is defining you, whether that is depression, whether that is promiscuity, whether that is addiction, whether that is habits that you have learned to carry with you every day, day in and day out to the well. It's become part of your narrative. You see, you have to be intentional about forsaking things that are trying to define your narrative, to define your life that are toxic. And what I think was so interesting about this exchange, like I said, it, it's not mentioned in the scriptures, but it was almost like she had to receive the grace of Jesus first before she was able to release what she was holding on to. You see, a lot of times in Christian circles, we say you have to release something first before you can receive it. But I think in this story, there was something that was happening between the two of them. There was a healing that was happening between the two of them. Where when he identified himself, his identity became the antidote to her indiscretion and it healed her in that moment and she received the grace that he was offering her. And because she was able to receive the grace that he was offering her, she was able to release what was trying to define her. I want to give us an action step this morning if we can. Because we're in a heavy day. Today's heavy because of the events of yesterday. But I think some of us live in heaviness every day, regardless of whether or not there was a shooting down the road. Some of us live in heavy narratives that we have created for ourselves or that we let define our life, that we let define our relationships. We can't have a healthy relationship because we have created a narrative and there are things that we are holding on to and we are carrying that need to be left at the cross, that need to be left in Jesus' presence so that our narrative can become about influencing our community 
because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even leave out. I didn't even put in the, the best part of the story is that this woman became the mouthpiece of the message of the gospel to her village. All of them recognized the Messiah as a result of her mouth when her destiny changed and he came in and he flipped the script and the narrative changed and she went out and she said, I have met the Messiah. I have met the one that can make me let go of whatever is trying, that you are trying to define me with. I don't have to be bitter at you because I have been set free from what is holding me down. And they all believed as a result of her because she had a destiny. She was always meant to be greater than what had defined her and what she had allowed to be her narrative. I'd like you to stand.